your pricing strategy and your expansion strategy should be very informed by the type of political climate that a particular state has because insurance is regulated at the state level. Welcome to MGA Founders Podcast with Socotra CEO, Dan Woods. Tune in each episode to hear Dan chat with innovative MGA founders to learn their stories, their challenges, and their visions. And now our host, Dan Woods. Carrie Ann Nadeau and John Henry are founders and co-CEOs of Loop, a mission-driven insurance company creating fair car insurance for all. So John and Carrie Ann, uh, first thing I've got to ask is, I love that you're mission-driven. I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about the mission and, and fairness and what is it you'd like to see different in the world? Yeah, happy to jump in. Thanks for having us, Dan. As you mentioned, Loop is a brand new InsurTech selling private passenger automobile insurance, and we take a different tact than most other insurance companies in the market today in prioritizing fairness and equity in our approach to selling car insurance. And that's baked from the very beginning, from the ground up into the way that we structure our rates. So we've gone ahead and removed things like credit, occupation, education, things that are unfair for a lot of people and really don't relate to the way that they drive and instead taken a more uh, data-driven approach, technology-forward approach to using all of the information that we can collect about where people drive and how dangerous are the roads. But that also pervades how we treat people as well. It comes through not only in the parts that people don't see, the algorithms that go into structuring a rate, but also in the experience people have with Loop's product, the respect and the dignity that we treat people with as they buy auto insurance. We feel like it shouldn't feel like going to a used car lot and buying car insurance. Like you feel like you might be getting ripped off and you're not really sure how. It should feel more like Chick-fil-A where you show up, someone greets you delightfully, offers you extra sauces and other experiences that make you feel great uh, about buying their product and particularly in a market that is commoditized like fast food or like car insurance. Those are the things that we believe are going to set us apart in this market. Now, I understand you're coming in with a strong insurance background. We have with us, of course, John Henry as well. And John brings more um, operational technology background and other things. How did you get bought into this mission? And how did this idea hatch between the two of you? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think insurance definitely benefits from a lot of outside experience coming, a perspective that is not traditional insurance. We can phrase it that way. And for me, I am just an entrepreneur through and through. I love large market opportunities, challenging problems, and uh, having been through a number of rodeos at this point and having raised the venture fund and done a bunch of different things, I was at the stage in my career where I was looking for something that can impact millions of lives. And the financial services sector, I think there's a lot of attention typically placed on insurance. I'm sorry, on the banking sector. It's a little bit more sexy. The uh, incumbents have been quicker to adopt technology. FinTech is, as a category, I think if you separate it from insurtech, sees a lot quicker rate of adoption. But, you know, I always felt like insurance was the invisible layer that underpins a lot, trillions of dollars of economic activity that doesn't get a lot of love. And, you know, there are many moments in American history where insurance played a critical role in the outcome. For example, in the 1960s, when Black Americans were 
omitted from the FHA, which is a, the largest wealth driver in American history that allowed folks to buy homes for 3% down, folks were systematically removed from that opportunity, not because banks wouldn't lend, but because insurance companies deem certain zip codes as, as too dangerous to insure. Of course, we, ne- we now know that as redlining. But you know that was decades ago and it had significant ramifications. So as a mission-driven founder, I look for these industries that are, they're opaque, they have low NPS, they command trillions of dollars of economic activity as a preference, large market opportunity, and, and of course, auto is nearly inexhaustible. So yeah, but I wouldn't touch insurance with a 10-foot pole were it not for having a founder that had pioneered some really defensible underlying and proprietary technology. And I think when you compare brand excellence with you know ro- robust technology, that's a ride worth going on. So that's why we started Loop. Wow. And I mean, other directions I want to go with that, but you really touched on something that surprised me. I mean, I think we're all aware today of the the legacy of redlining. And I think it's typically the banks that bear the the at least the popular blame for it. It sounds like the insurers were at least as responsible. I'm kind of curious for I'm probably not the only one listening who heard that perked up and thought, whoa, this is this is different than the history I thought I learned. I'm curious if there's more for to share with our listeners. Yeah, I can touch a little bit on that. My background actually before coming to insurance is in city planning. And I never thought that those two worlds would overlap, but they overlap a lot. Uh, We really need to understand the way that our spaces were planned and organized, where people lived, where people were allowed to buy homes. Less than 100 years ago, that landscape put Black and Hispanic and immigrant communities in specific areas and real estate agents, banks, and insurance companies were unwilling to touch some of those communities. What that's meant over time, and insurance, particularly auto insurance, still continues to use much of the way that they did it 50, 100 years ago in zip codes, uh, geographic areas that we know are still segregated. uh, If you look at the demographics of zip codes that has persisted over time. And when we took a look, John mentioned our proprietary technology, we're able to peel back not just the influence of a zip code on a rate, but actually what's the underlying risk in that zip code? We collected public records from state and local agencies, hundreds of thousands of car crashes, and we located them on a map. What we found was that zip codes that were predominantly Black and predominantly Hispanic were still being overcharged today. Those zip codes are priced much higher than majority white and upper middle income neighborhoods, despite the fact that they had no more crashes than those other zip codes. So the way that we set forth you know, how we were going to price this zip code versus that zip code has persisted and perpetuated some of the unfairness that existed in the way that people, you know, chose where they were going to live. If we look at the actual underlying risk that is in those zip codes, there really is no difference. And and that means that it's been unfair, that the product has not been fairly or justly priced for those people that through whatever circumstance were born, raised, and continue to live in areas that are that are majority minority or more minorities live in. 
Yeah, that's a really important point. I just want to double click on because I, I think when you hear about an equity angle or something like that, it's made to seem as though it's like kind of fluffy. But there is indeed a very robust business case that we're tackling here. And I just want to be explicit that I am absolutely a capitalist. <laughs> we're in business and we believe that there's a pricing inefficiency in the market whereby there are large segments of the market that are priced as high risk, but indeed represent statistically no more, you know, probability of being involved in a crash in other segments. So we're going to hone in and build in incumbents blind spots and build a multi-billion dollar business there and win with that segment 10 out of 10 times. What I love about what you're saying is that it's inherently two sides of the same coin. What you call fairness is literally the, the exact same thing is increased actuarial accuracy. Correct. It's literally the same thing. Well phrased. Someone's being overcharged is an actuarial error. That's right. Or an actuarial blind spot, I would say. I think ah. a lot of insurance companies don't have as much experience in specific areas. And so they're more risk averse, given that the mathematics are not as strong in some areas as other. Simply sample size problems that have led people to perpetuate and continue carrying forward the way things always have been done. But on top of that, I, I like to use the analogy of like playing poker, right? Being at a poker table. When you sit down at a poker table, you see your own cards and you know how to play your hand given the cards that are in your hand. With the advancements in data and technology where we see data coming from telematics devices that monitor where you drive, how you behave, when you're on the roads, whether you're exposed to really unsafe areas, you start to be able to see more cards on the table. You start to be able to look at risk differently, segment it more specifically. And so I think it's, it's really a blind spot for actuarial science where we've been only looking at the cards in our hands and really this transformation and this rapid expansion of the amount of information that we can collect has been, you know, it's essentially sitting down at a poker table and only looking at your own hand when you can see everyone else's cards. That's really the opportunity for us here to improve the actuarial mathematics that go into pricing risk and rating risk accurately is that we can see more, we can look at more data, we can understand it more fully. And that amount of data is only ramping and scaling over time. Because that creates sometimes like a chicken and egg problem where you have to have a thesis on what data will be useful in order to go out and find it to determine if it's actually useful. How do you unravel that? Or did you just stumble upon a data set in the first place and just do a little MATLAB and, and discover something? How did that come together? Yeah, certainly experience matters quite a bit, right? You can have a hypothesis, but until you experience claims, you can't really test that hypothesis from an actuarial exactly. science perspective. So I appreciate that. One data set that is available to us that other insurance companies haven't leveraged perhaps as much as they could is the data coming from state and local governments around traffic crashes. This is the closest approximation to population level statistics about where car crashes are happening and to whom they're happening to. So we collect about 40,000 crashes a month in the state of Texas alone, which vastly exceeds any other incumbent insurance carriers claims data. So we're actually collecting and understanding a lot more data able to validate our hypotheses with more population level stats rather than only those customers that we serve. Okay. So it's starting to emerge here kind of the, as I'm 
our audience is going to meet the two of you, how the roles are divided and so forth. I'm not sure that everyone has heard of a co-CEO. Let me ask how you met, first of all, because I'm, I'm looking at your backgrounds. We've got, we got someone from, with a master's from MIT working with a proud freshman dropout, bringing different components together. How did this odd couple come together? How do you make it work? And describe the co-CEO yeah, way of yeah. life. Yeah, uh, it's a way of life indeed. Um, Carrie and I met at a technology conference where I was speaking and she was presenting what has become the guts of Loop. At one point, these predictive models were sold first to cities and then to insurance carriers and neither make for awesome customers. Dan, you can empathize uh, with slow moving uh, incumbents, but you know, you got them there eventually. But yep. You know, I saw tremendous value in the technology and, and then I think Carrie saw tremendous value in my ability to commercialize technology. We stayed in touch over the years and at some point it became evident that the real market opportunity here was to vertically integrate the technology and fully express it in the market under our full control. So for example, when you have these predictive models that can anticipate where car crashes occur and you look to sell them to incumbents, they might have adopted a portion of it and try to use it for marketing purposes or for you know some content posts or for engagement. But we saw a much more holistic vision and application of this technology in the market. And like Steve Jobs would quote Alan Kay and say that, you know, if you're serious about software, you build your own hardware. We felt like if we were serious about our data, we will build our own product and our own, our own software. And so this gives us the ability to do really, really awesome things with our insured. So for example, a typical insurance carrier experience is you sign up, it's a really shitty experience. And then a lot of time goes by and then God forbid there's a claim. And then there, you know, it's, that's also a clunky experience. But what about all that time in the middle? This is where the name Loop came from. We envision this world where we can constantly engage our community and let you know when you're driving on crash prone roads. So rather than be reactive to a claim, we can be proactive and steer you away from dangerous roads. And so, you know, there's a lot that can emerge when you decide to become vertically integrated. And for us, that started with the MGA business model, which I'm sure we'll unpack in a moment. Regarding the co-CEO thing, man, I, I think, honestly... I don't see how you could not have co-CEOs at this point, uh, you know, running this. This business is incredibly complex. I sure wish I had one, Seth Times. Yeah, imagine, imagine Dan, someone at your intellectual caliber helping you run the business and knowing the business as intimately well as you do. It only can accelerate your, your progress. And I think the, the things to hedge for are clear areas of domain expertise, which I, I don't think there's any risk of overlap pretty much between Carrie and I. So I deal with everything front of house and she'll de deal with everything back of house. But the advantages are duplicity in that executive level thinking, discernment, judgment, decision-making. And I've seen it work prior. We had it at Harlem Capital. We saw it in KKR. And typically you'll see it in financial institutions because of the enormous amount of complexity that those institutions have. And with a consumer financial technology company, it just made a lot of sense to have two people represent the company in a CEO capacity. And it's worked really well. We can get the most badass marketing talent on earth because of me. And we can get really, really freakishly good data scientists because of Carrie. So I just, uh, I see it as a superpower.
And then I'm curious about some of your background. Carrie Ann, of course, we spoke about some of your background in municipal planning and things like that. John, what I find interesting is you were a founder that then went into VC and came back. So you've you crossed the border twice. And I'm kind of curious, how did that journey go? Was the grass looking greener on the other side and then turned out it wasn't? Or <laughs> Well, VCs, it's much better to be a VC if you want to collect the check and be a little bit more passive. Uh, but I'm just poking in front of my VC friends. But no, I mean, I, I'm a founder that became a VC, not a VC that became a founder. I mean, I love the operational grittiness and rolling my sleeves up and eating shit and getting punched in the mouth 10 times uh, a week. That's where I feel most alive. And um, at some point I was running an incubator and that evolved into a venture fund. And I learned quite a great deal in the venture world that is now being applied at Loop, specifically venture math. I think a lot of founders don't fully appreciate the ecosystem that is venture capital. You know, founders will be coy and try and raise small rounds and, you know, they don't realize that the moment you raise a small round, you're, you're done. You've already limited the pool of financiers that are interested because of the size of the round. And also, I learned a lot about, you know, raising capital from institutional players. Um, there's a certain caliber of excellence required in the reporting and the presentation of materials and how you can pitch them, keeping your materials con uh, condensed and concise, but also to dive in on the venture math, there's a certain target ownership that funds are looking to buy. Um, seed stage venture has become institutionalized. You now have multi-billion dollar seed stage funds and you need to take a certain amount of ownership in every round and there's a certain amount of follow-on funding that is required and so on. So, Of course, seed has gotten a lot bigger too. I mean, I think what they call seed today, people are talking about $10 million seed rounds and things like that. I mean, yeah. $6 million was an A all of you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And so we, you zoom out, the takeaway for us is when we were starting Loop, we knew we had to go and raise big right from the start. We knew that we're not targeting an acquisition price. We're only going for a listing price. And our investors know that if we are acquired, then that'll have been a failure. We are looking to build an enduring company over the next 40 years. Um, and it's that type of thinking and that type of excellence that A, attracts the best investors, but also B, attracts the best employees to build the best product that gets the best customers. So it's go big or go home in this sport. Now, obviously, you work with a reinsurer, and we'll come back uh, around to how all of that has worked. But um, when you raise these big rounds, obviously, you've got to build your product, you've got to do your marketing, all the tech, all the operations, all that sort of stuff. But is there a certain amount that you have to have as like your own reserve on hand or some something that you've got to think about because you're in the insurance space that maybe Socotra wouldn't have to think about when we're raising our money because we get to spend all of it? That's a great question. So that kind of bleeds into our business model. And there are a few different types of uh, strategies that insure techs have taken to get into market. Some of them require reserves and some of them don't. The strategy that we've taken is to become a managing general agency or a type of business where we actually borrow a license from a fronting carrier, in our case, an A-plus rated fronting carrier named Obsidian, 
that helps new kind of concepts get into market um, by lending their license. So once you have the licensure, you then need to still uh, negotiate reinsurance and bring in the reinsurance market. Together, the reinsurer and the fronting carrier will cover the cost of claims. They'll essentially take the risk, bear the risk of the portfolio. That means that they're incredibly diligent upfront to vetting the technology, to vetting your approach to pricing and rating risk. They monitor the product's performance over time and really help advise, guide, but support our growth. Now, if we have claims, they also backstop those claims so that the capacity that we've raised in investment capital is not immediately allocated if we have a car. I love, your optimism, I love your optimism, by the way, if we have claims. <laughs> well, when we have claims, hopefully a few of them, yeah. certainly claims have. That's that's the business. It's just betting at how good you can get at risk selection and how small the claim sizes can mature to through the quality of the service that you provide in that moment. But when we have more claims, they're there to help backstop some of those losses, which means that our investment capital is not allocated to claims. If we had a very severe crash, sometimes car insurance claims can get up to multi-million dollar litigated circumstances. We don't need to necessarily put our own investment dollars into paying out that claim. Yeah. Let me just double click there. The economics of the MGA were mysterious to us at first because there's tremendous opacity. In short, the MGA, it's a great hybrid model. If you're a broker, then you just have a pretty skin, but you don't actually control the risk design. You don't do any of the underwriting. So you command a smaller gross, gross margin. Um, if you're a carrier, you command more gross margin, but you're liable for the risk. And so the reason we chose the MGA model was because it's got the best of both worlds. You can command a fairly decent gross commission, but also you're in charge of the, the risk design, the procurement, the acquisition of the customer, the policy servicing and so on. And so it ends up being either A, a really great model if you're looking to become a carrier you first dial in your underwriting models, your loss ratio, you grow your book of business, you, you expand geographically to diversify your risk, and then you become a carrier. Or, by the way, some of the trends that I'm seeing from some of the public insure techs is they are looking to go from a carrier to an MGA. Because I think if you become a carrier too quickly and your loss ratio is out of control and you're liable for those claims, you probably want to move to a model where you're just making a flat commission. So our average policy is about $1,000. We make a fixed commission on that called 25%. 250 bucks of every policy is ours. The rest is used to pay out claims. Anything left over, that profit is divvied up by what we call the quota share, which is really just your reinsurers. Anything, if you have more claims than you have premiums, those losses are also divvied up amongst the quota share. And so the MGA is a razor thin model BT dubs, by the way, right? Because you have your commission, but by the way, you have to pay the fronting carrier for the fact that you're borrowing their solvency requirements. So there goes another five points out the window. And oh, by the way, the reinsurer forces you to have uh, an LAE, which is a, a margin that's allocated for the handling and processing of claims. So there goes another 7.5 points out the window. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, you have to pay taxes at the state level. So there goes another 1.6 points. Uh, and if you've been following the math, you're down to like 4.65 points of net. 
so it's 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 a razor thin business. It's really a top line business. Your job as an MGA is to grow the top line such that you can have enough premiums relative to your cost structure. And then from there, you can work, you can renegotiate your deal, improve your commission, hopefully decrease your front fee and then make it work about year two, year three. But it's definitely a business where you must be capitalized with outside financing up front because it will simply not work on its own merit unless you just have a retail shop and you're picking up the phone and you're, and you're calling. If you have no engineers, amen, you can make it work. But if you have engineers and you have data people, I guarantee you the amount of premium is not is not offsetting our cost structure. So you need that outside money. Yeah, yeah. Then how did you how did you learn all this to get started? Was it do you have a good mentor, peers? Is that available online? It is certainly not available online. Uh, if you Google MGA, I'm not sure what would come up, but certainly there's no guidebook of how to launch your own MGA. Uh, I had been selling into the insurance business for about five years, the data and technology that I developed, and so had built a robust network of folks who we could call and ask. But I think that the real gift of any founder is being able to learn very fast, being able to figure it out yeah. through any means necessary. And so it's a combination of just like grit, determination, picking up the phone, calling, asking questions, and formulating your hypotheses around what has worked and what hasn't worked in the past. And what we saw, as John mentioned, were a number of insure techs that went too quickly to own their own risk, to become insurance carriers, to take on that risk too soon and expand very quickly, which really puts you in a bind because you can't kind of reverse course or reverse action too quickly in insurance to correct for some of those errors. So we'd rather be a little bit more prudent, a little bit more diligent, dial in how we can approach acquiring customers. We're launched just in the state of Texas right now. And while we have an ambitious plan to be writing and selling business in 10 states soon, we know that we need to do the work. We need to put in the work, get the experience before we, we put too much gas uh, or put the pedal down too hard. Yeah. And to emphasize your question, Dan, I'm excited for this podcast in particular, because there is a tremendous amount of opacity in insurance in general. If you're in insurance, uh, you'll know this. You post something on LinkedIn and no one responds and you're like, what the hell? Did no one read it? And then you get a bunch of DMs because people are so coy that they don't even want to signal to their colleagues the types of things that they're engaging with. So now try getting the lowdown on how a business model works and now try getting a, finan a sample financial model or some PDFs or anything, you'll be hard pressed. And so I think that, that there's a lot of room in the market for a podcast like this, where you can break down the specifics. And we're here as open books because I would have devoured this podcast when we were starting and, and likely still will, even as a, as a fellow operator now. Switching gears a little bit, you, you've launched in Texas. And you're both in Texas. Did the launch in Texas prompt you to move here? Um, obviously, a lot of MGAs launch in states where they're not residing. I'm kind of curious, what brought you here? Well, many years ago, I got into acquiring real estate. And I heard this myth that you, know, you can be like this out-of-state landlord. Of course, it's true. But when you're starting, you will get your ass kicked up and down. Uh, and so having gone through that experience, I didn't want to be in another state and then have our customer base here, you know, in order to be successful in this business and any business, I want to be talking to our customers, meeting our customers, spending time with our customers, 
And we also uh, have ambitions to have several thousand employees at Loop. And so, you know, from a cost of living perspective, it was a lot more feasible to do this in a state like Texas for just the median cost of living and the, the cost of real estate where you don't have to pay your staff, you know, San Francisco style salaries in order for them to have a decent life. So a lot of things drove us to Texas, but specifically Austin. There's a lot of activity here. But now let's discuss also the geopolitical considerations in insurance, which were new to me. I didn't realize that, you know, your pricing strategy and your expansion strategy should be very informed by the type of political climate that a particular state has, because insurance is regulated at the state level. So you have these insurance commissioners that are, you know, their their bosses are the governors. And in blue states, it's immensely difficult to get a new product approved, especially a rate filing such as ours that has a lot of innovation built into it. We removed a lot of the typical factors and we knew that we would need regulators that were perhaps a little bit more flexible with new types of products. And so the blue states have tremendous capacity to evaluate something on its merits, so that's good, but it's a year-long process. So if you are an MGA startup, you will want to look for red states, just to put it plainly, where the regulatory climate is much more friendly, much more welcoming, and our rate filing was approved in 34 days beginning to end here in Texas. Other states where there are, you'll notice a lot of the insured techs typically go to these states, Colorado, Arizona, Lemonade launched in Illinois. There's a reason people are going to these states. It's just, it's easy to set up shop. Ohio is another. And so from a pricing perspective, this actually paints an interesting advantage as well, because you can allow your rate filing to be approved and you start collecting data and you start immediately able to distinguish in instances in which you're underpriced or overpriced. So if you wait a year uh, because you're waiting to get in New York and then, God forbid, you have it wrong and you're significantly underpriced and you're getting all the worst risk or you're significantly overpriced and you're not getting any business. Now try going to the regulators and justifying a rate increase. <laughs> you're screwed. You're done. You're, you're going to wait another six months to be approved. Whereas in these states that are a little bit more nimble, you can hit the ground running, iterate, 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 iterate. And once you dial in a uh, an accurate rate, then you can go to these blue states um, and file there. And by the way, that cost us, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of consulting with with uh, with actuarial consultants. So voila, there you have it. But um, these are the types of implications that and nuances that are not often discussed, but uh, play a really big role in the insurance industry. Yeah. Well, glad you made the trip out to Texas. So we got to meet. It was what about. Seven months ago, I think I met the two of you. I was new here and I didn't know a whole lot of people here, but we did have three customers in Austin already. So there's quite an insure tech community here, which I've been quite impressed by. So we had a little bit of a, a meetup. It's great meeting the two of you guys, finding a few things in common. Can we talk about something that's relevant to Socotra? Carrie, I would let's talk about the policy admin system because, oh my God. Has this been easily the most costly, arduous, time-consuming mistake that we made as a company easily was... Yep. I wasn't going to get into it, but you were sitting next to me at dinner. And you, before you even knew what I did, you're just like, uh, policy admin. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, 
it is the most important decision that nobody talks about and that everybody makes in private. And by the way, everyone gets it wrong unless you're going with Socotra. And by the way, hashtag not a fucking ad. This is not an ad. But all right, I, I mean, let's let's spend a little bit of time here, Carrie. Yeah. Let's keep it a buck. We, we, let's not name anybody, but let's just let MGA founders know what time it is with the policy admin system. Yeah, I think part of the difficulty in figuring out when you're launching what kind of policy administration system you're going to use or how you're going to deploy a policy administration system is that the legacy incumbent carriers have encoded technology that is built in languages that we don't even use anymore. Most of them are also on-prem storage. They're not yet in the cloud even. So in terms of like, you know, the basic principles of how data is managed, how data is moved, how data is stored, how you can access it is fundamentally hard-coded and stuck in the 90s, which for somebody who wasn't necessarily, you know, working in insurance companies in the 90s would be impossible to learn and difficult to use and totally nail your feet to the floor. Every step, every decision you want to make takes six months to do. Now, we live in a world where I expect things to be fast, accessible, usable. I want customizations. I want to be able to understand and utilize it without needing to, to understand a language that doesn't exist anymore. All of these sort of fundamental elements that make technology modern the insurance industry has not gone over that overhaul, has not gone through that overhaul. So Dan, you were talking about like, well, how did you learn about the MGA structure? We asked people, we said, okay, this is a structure that's been used before. When it comes to a policy administration system, nobody has good advice for you. They either built it in-house or they used a third party that they aren't super satisfied with that struggles with the same issues that come from building it in-house. So when you're launching a new business, you have limited capacity in terms of engineering support. You have limited financial capital, potentially. It becomes kind of a difficult decision. Are you going to be able to build this in-house? Can you financially sustain and can you, from a technological expertise perspective, build something you've never built before? Or will you go with a third party that you know inherently can't satisfy your need to live in a modern world? So we made the mistake of, well, I wouldn't say a mistake, you know, it's with that difficult choice, we made the decision to go with a third party that wasn't Socotra to begin with. In the back of our heads, we're like, man, an SDA model would be the right model for us, where we build modular components and we have some of that infrastructure already established that we can customize. But not until we raised another round of capital were we in a position to really strategically evaluate whether we could overhaul that system. Well, what did that do? Well, that created a legacy product that we have to deal with as we're trying to launch a new product and difficulty in transitioning policies and understanding our book of business and rating people consistently and accurately, all kinds of dynamics and all kinds of trouble. Had we been smart from day one, we would have gone with what we knew to be the right decision, which would have been a Socotra type model where we could hire limited engineering support, minimal engineering support, take some of the advantages of pre-built modules and integrations that are all cloud hosted, all secure, kind of all already in the 21st century 
and build our program on top of that. So hashtag not an ad, but yeah, we wasted a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy. It had a lot of frustration. Had we made a better decision at the outset, we wouldn't have had faced a lot of those challenges. I think the most important aspect of the policy admin system decision that I that we underestimated is not having the control of the speed to resolution in your hands. And this wasn't a decision. I just didn't think about it when, and it's not a, a dig on any third party. It's just, you don't want anybody in charge of your response time to your customers. You just don't. And when you choose a policy admin system, you'll go through the sales process and, you know, and, you know, they'll sell you on the capabilities and then you say, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have that. But then you don't realize that the actual development of it and the maintenance of it. And when customers have feedback for you, you don't just go to your CTO and say, hey, uh, or your product manager and say, hey, uh, let's resolve this Jira ticket that you created internally. You now have to create a Jira ticket that then has to go to an outside party that then is servicing many clients. And then you sit and wait in the queue and it can be months before a mission critical item is resolved. And so I think that the microservice architecture model is so powerful for us personally because that control is in our hands. The customer says that they need something done, we can deal with it with internally with our own technology team. And that probably was the most important factor for us. Well, all things I'm going to say when you invite me to a SaaS Founders podcast, because <laughs> you've got your mission. I think you've very well articulated mine because I definitely feel the pain there. And that's exactly why I do what I do. So that's touching to me to see that people that that gets across and it's, it's achieving it. Yeah. Well, I think we're coming up on time. So last question I'm going to have is people who are excited about what you're doing. How can they contact you? Perhaps what are you looking to recruit for or anything else people can do to help and how can they find you? Yeah. Well, we started last year at five people and ended at 50 people. We're now close to 60 and hoping to end the year at 125 people. Um, so we are looking for product managers, technology side, but also insurance side, actuaries, data scientists, data analysts. We're looking for marketing staff. We're looking for engineers. We want to hire all the best people across all the best disciplines. So yes, holla at your boy. And also... We are available. We will make ourselves available to listeners of this podcast. If you've stuck it out to the very end, I want you to say the code word hype. Code word hype. If you reach out to us and you say the code word and indicate to us that you listen all the way through the end, we would love to make ourselves available to speak with aspiring MGA founders and go even deeper on the economics, the pitfalls, the negotiations with con with uh, with fronts, the development of your rates, of your forms, of your rules, um, all these things that will have material impact on your business, we'd love to help with. Somebody's got to take away that button. <laughs> yeah. This might be the first one to have a sequel. I think that um, there's way too much to cover here. You guys are such a wealth of information and experiences and just the readiness to share and help others is just fantastic. We need more of that. John, Carrie Ann, thank you so much for joining today. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Cheers, Dan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of MGA Founders Podcast, brought to you by Socotra, 
the policy administration system modern enough to power today's most innovative insurtechs. Visit Socotra.com forward slash MGA to see why more insurtechs trust Socotra than any other core platform. You'll find links to future episodes in today's show notes. Thank you for listening and make sure to subscribe and help us out with the review.